when we promo this and we and we uh, and we and we link to it and people listen to it, they're going to know. Hey, we should. I should join this ridiculous ricochet. <laughs> I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's not enough to be the leader of the nation. Today it takes to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long and Peter Robinson. I'm James Lilix, and today we talk to Andrew Roberts about Churchill and Zelensky and H.R. McMaster about the war in Ukraine. Let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, episode number 585. Wow. What are we going to do when we hit 600? Well, wander on over to ricochet.com and get a hint. Uh, join ricochet.com, why don't you, as well, and be part of the most stimulating conversations and community on the web. I'm James Lalex after a fortnight's sojourn. Happy to be back. Peter Robinson is here. I know, of course, you guys ached and missed me terribly. Uh, and I'd ask Rob what he felt about it, but he's stuck in traffic. He'll be along presently. We're going to go right to our first guest, though, because it's a lot to talk about these days. Andrew Roberts, author of nearly two dozen histories, including Storm of War, Churchill, Walking with Destiny, and most recently, The Last King of America. Currently, he's in Hungary and just made a visit to the Ukrainian border. And as Ricochet's, well, perhaps the world's preeminent authority on Sir Winston, we wanted his take on World War III. Actually, I think it's World War V, if you want to be technical. And Churchill number two. Andrew, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be on the uh, podcast. We understand that you're, you're in, I'm sorry, you're in Budapest. But uh, given that we're, we're renaming everything now correctly, shouldn't that be Budapest? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I am. I'm the guest of, uh, I'm, a, I'm a visiting fellow of the Danube Institute, which is John O'Sullivan's outfit uh, here in uh, Hungary. And it's, uh, it's a great honor to, um, to be a visiting fellow with them. Oh, I didn't know that. John was our guest last week, and now I feel as though we're in a rut. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Andrew, listen, I, <laughs> I, I want to get, of course, I want to get to your, what struck you, what strikes you in Eastern Europe, and what struck you when you were on the Ukrainian border. Eyewitness account, how what you saw affected your thinking. First, however, I must note that you recorded a podcast, I believe it was yesterday, with Henry Kissinger. 98 years old, and you recorded the podcast on the very day that a piece by Henry Kissinger on Ukraine appeared in the Washington Post. And we have, very broadly speaking, two schools of thought on Ukraine. One is the Zelensky school of thought, where Z President Zelensky of Ukraine actually is playing a leading role, in, as far as I can tell, in thinking about what America ought to do, and that has helped them in every way possible. The lead editorial in the Wall Street Journal yesterday was headlined, Why Not Victory in Ukraine? Question mark. Against that, we have the example, to go way back in history, not to a real historian, this isn't way back, but to most of us, it's way back. 1956, there's a Hungarian revolution, and Dwight David Eisenhower does what? Nothing. He lets the Russians 
put them down on put it down on prudential considerations. And Kissinger, I haven't heard your podcast yet, but in his piece in the Post, he's arguing: think, think. There is history here. There are national interests at stake. Ukraine is a complicated place. Russian speaking in the East, Ukrainian speaking in the West, Orthodox in the East, Catholic in the West, half European, half Asian, and for centuries, a country with its own history and culture intertwined with that of Russia. Think carefully. Let's see if we can't reach a settlement. Where do you, th where, where, where are you? Well, in my conversation with him yesterday, um, he was talking more about why Putin has done this. And it uh, wasn't about the orthodoxy and the, um, uh, and the westward-leaning attractions of West Ukraine and so on. It was much more about, uh, as you'd expect from somebody like Henry Kissinger, who's interested in the rise and fall of great powers, he sees it in terms of a declining Russian um, empire, as it were, collapsing under the weight of its own contradictions and lashing out viciously uh, in its uh, in its sort of the beginnings of its death throes. I think I might be exaggerating slightly what he was saying, but that's that was his. Um, he did use the phrase "lashing out" and "declining power" and so on. So, um, I, uh, I I think that that's an interesting take, obviously on. Uh, uh, on what's going on, but I, I, my problem, I think, with with uh, that article was that it seemed to move towards trying to open up the idea of a partitioned yes. uh, Ukraine, and that's a wrong. That's I think that's wrong. You I do think that's morally wrong. Yes, because I think that if aggression is seen to have paid so successfully in Putin's case that you've got a. Um, uh, a partitioned Ukraine, perhaps along the Dnieper, with a Western Ukraine that's based in uh, Lviv. I think you have so um, patted him on the back, you have so rewarded aggression, that it's essentially another um, another long part of the long uh, Via Dolorosa of appeasement that we've uh, that we've been. Uh, following with Putin, and I think that uh, this is a uh, there is, of course, especially among, in the conservative movement uh, in Britain and America, but more in America, a, um, a a difference between the isolationists and and what I would call the Reaganauts. You know, people who do believe that you've got to engage properly in uh, in Europe, and um, I think a partition would be a very bad thing. Mm. And, and what, give us a report if you, if, I, I don't, uh, since I'm not there, I don't even know quite what question to ask. James will come in in a moment because James is good at, James is very good at questions. But how has being where you have been for this last period of days, how has going to the border affected your um, thinking? Well, I went over the border actually into oh, did you? Ukraine um, to, yeah, to, um, uh, to talk to Ukrainians and to uh, sort of get a sense of that. Only uh, Western Ukraine, which was not under attack at that stage, they hadn't lobbed that uh, cruise missile like they did a couple of days ago. But, um, but the, well, first of all, of course, emotionally, it's, uh, it's, terrible you know there are long lines of refugees there are miles upon miles of, of cars of them trying to get uh, out then at the actual border itself you have sort of well where i was crossing there were women who were screaming because they they uh, didn't have the right uh, documentation and and uh, um it was it was quite sort of powerfully emotional also to see individual um 
women, young women, with um, with one single roll-on suitcase. Mm. And you think to yourself, how could I fit my worldly positions into what, what would I take? You know, how would I go about trying to mm. do this and leave the country for who knows how long, perhaps, you know, like the 56ers in Hungary, perhaps for the rest of their lives. It's, it was, it was a very moving and, uh, and profoundly emotional experience. And, uh, when I talked to, um, Ukrainians in, uh, Berhovi, which is a, a city on the, uh, um, in Western uh, Ukraine, they were saying, and these are not Zelensky supporters. These are people who, who didn't vote for him, who are ethnically uh, Hungarian. They're Subcarpathians. They, they, you know, a, a, a lot of them don't really truly consider themselves to be wholly mm. Ukrainian, um, and uh, and they all admired him really? hugely. They said that the that oh yeah, the last three weeks have brought them round to him entirely. They thought that his his leadership was just superb. Uh, which I thought was very interesting, considering they are not Zelensky mm. supporters. Mm. That is the question of the day. People are comparing him to Churchill. And Churchill, um, in his time, did not voice animated cartoons or play the piano or dance on the wireless. Uh, different backstories for these gentlemen. But yet he seems to have channeled and found something that perhaps people did not expect. And a lot well, well, Churchill, can I just can I just um, mm. intervene this just for a second? Because of course, Churchill was ridiculed hugely. Uh, he was laughed at. He was shouted down in the House of Commons. He was uh, in the press. He was, you know, made out to be a a, a joke figure for for some parts of the nineteen thirties. He wasn't, uh, of course, as you say, he's not. He wasn't a, a stand up comedian like Mr. Zelensky, but he was somebody who. Uh, took a lot of um, of ridicule mm-hmm. in his uh, in his wilderness years. But nevertheless, you could see the character of the man in his earlier days, um, and, and perhaps nobody expected Zelensky to be able to tap whatever he has tapped. Now, a lot of people argue about this. It's it's manufactured. It's not. It's not true. You know, it's it's ridiculous. We're we're inflating this guy for weaponized empathy and all the other accusations you find from people who don't like Zelensky or don't like the fact that he's being praised. But nevertheless, you have, I mean, there is something unique about the man that capitalized on the moment. It might be because he's an actor, but it could be because there's there's something in his character that he found. And so if you could compare the two, how would you compare them since the comparisons are being made? Or do you think it's it's really a waste of time because it's not necessary to connect Zelensky to Churchill to find him admirable or a, an honorable man? No, I think it is. I think it is essential, really, because um, I think that this leadership that he's showing is indeed Churchillian. And for all of the people in the West, safe, safe in the West to uh, to... Uh, try to denigrate him. One has to remember that this is a man who's refusing to leave his capital and willing to fight to the death. Mm. And that's something mm. that an awful lot of people in the West might not be willing to do. And some, some and, it, and it automatically focuses the attention on this uh, on this style of leadership. And it was the same thing that Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill had no plans to leave London. We were going to move the gold out of Britain, and the, the young princesses and the king might leave, but uh, Churchill was not going to leave. And so so a sense of somebody who's willing to fight to the death literally for their principles in their capital city is something I think that focuses the attention astonishingly well. And in fact, of course, the other thing is that whilst Churchill was bombed for hundreds of days 
uh, from the air, like Zelensky's being bombed every day. Uh, he didn't actually have enemy troops 18 kilometers from, uh, mm-hmm. so a little over 10 miles uh, away from him in the uh, in the capital city. So in a sense, um, Zelensky's Churchillian leadership, I think, does hold true. So when we say Churchillian, because we should probably narrow in on the term, it's not just the defiance, though. There's there's something else. There's a there's a there's a humanity to it, and, and a a fellow feeling, an empathetic bond with the people that seems to be what we're discussing. Precisely, and an ability to um, through rhetoric, through oratory, uh, to connect with the people. I think the way in which Zelensky hasn't attempted to minimise the dangers is also Churchillian. You know, he 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 doesn't try to sugar the pill. How can he? He's being, you know, bombed. Right. Um, but also, his uh, he has deliberately paraphrased Churchill in his speech to the House of uh, Commons the other day. He talked about we shall fight in the streets, we shall fight in the forests, which uh, and we and we will and we will win. You know, this is a clear paraphrase of Churchill's Fourth of June. Uh, Dunkirk speech in 1940, and um, and I think it works. I mean, I know it works because it certainly makes my ta- uh, spine tingle when I hear the words. Andrew, <sighs> all right. So, can I, I'll trot out some thinking, and then yield to your superior analytical powers. The larger, <laughs> the large strategic question here is this. Can the West pull itself together to face up to the challenges which are likely to come principally from China and not Russia, but from both, and from Iran? Can the West pull itself together enough to think of itself as an entity and to defend itself? That's the big strategic question. Now, I completely agree. Absolutely. Right? That has okay. to, that, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. All right. So that's the large strategic question. Now, you put that in the background, and then you think, I'm just, I'm just thinking this out, out loud to get you to the one or two steps I feel I can take, and then see what, what you do, the 10 more steps I'm sure you can take. Ukraine is, on the one hand, we have the Kissinger position that he laid out, which is the Donbass is Russian-speaking, Crimea, the, the, the naval port in Sevastopol in Crimea is founded by Catherine the Great five years before the Constitution of the United States is ratified. The history is deep. There are grounds for a settlement. You've already rejected that. I'd also add that in the act of invading Ukraine, whatever shred of truthfulness there was in Putin's claim, he has now he, he, he has now invalidated. That is to say, even as best I can tell from recent polls, there are some polls have been taken, even the Donbass is now anti-Russian and pro-Ukraine. So Putin rolls in and behold, a genuine national consciousness is taking shape in a much more vivid and well-defined way than previously existed. Okay. From that, we descend to the practical question of, we give them anti-take weapons? Yes. What about MiGs? Different matter. What about a no-fly zone, for which President Zelensky explicitly asked when he addressed Congress two days ago? And Congress gave him a unanimous standing ovation, and I am 100% certain that a lot of members of Congress, as they walked out of that hall, muttered to one another, no-fly zone? Is he mad? So, So how does one think through descending from the large strategic question 
to what it is that we can do, including who are we? The Germans are back with us now? This is astonishing. Yes, I think that, well, first of all, I completely agree with you. Of course, it's very much part of the large strategic um, issue. The uh, I think the 24th of February 2022 is going to go down as an extremely important day in world history, um, post-war history. I think that um, having read Putin's uh, 6,685-word essay of July 2021 called On the Historical Unity of the Ukrainians and Russians, I was, um, of course, expecting him to say that Russia isn't a real country. Um, But I also noticed no fewer than 17 references to Lithuania as well, mm-hmm. uh, including some some rather sinister remarks about the overlaps, the cultural, uh, religious and historical overlaps between Lithuania and Russia, which means that if we were to allow him to win, uh, I were I a Lithuanian, I'd be very um, worried, even though, of course, Lithuania is in NATO. Um, with regard to, so, and so I think it's absolutely essential that he should um, he should lose, not not lose the Crimea. I don't think that you can um, necessarily uh, say that it has to be total victory. I think it has to go back to the um, uh, status quo ante to the point that so Mariupol stays in Ukraine. He doesn't get the land border between Crimea and uh, sorry the land corridor between like, Crimea and the Donbass. But um, as you say. You know, people have changed their minds massively. There was there was a very strong pro-Russian feeling in uh, in Ukraine before the invasion, and that has completely disappeared and will not mm. reappear for our lifetimes. So mm. I think we've got to uh, recognise that there's a there's a totally different um, attitude now, and the best way of getting a good outcome, i.e. Uh, one that Zelensky and Putin can live with, whereby all troops go back to where they were before the 24th of February 2022. And that, and by the way, I think we should still keep up our sanctions because he has got to um, to recognise there's a price to pay for uh, for having done what he's done. Nonetheless, I think the best way of going about this is to um, help arm them as much as possible to the point that we don't get into a third world war. And if historically we remember the amount that the uh, Russians, the support the Russians gave to North Vietnam during your war with uh, Vietnam, the amount uh, that Iran gave in terms of IEDs and so on to try and kill American soldiers in uh, Iraq, um, when, uh, and indeed Afghanistan in a a different uh, context, if you think about these historical um, uh, precedents, I think it would have been perfectly um, fine for the United States, the Biden administration, to have facilitated the MiGs getting into the Ukrainian hands without a world war. However, take that one stage further, unfortunately, in order to, uh, to... actually supervise a workable no-fly zone in which NATO uh, jets are not shot down, you have to take out the ground-to-air facilities, which unfortunately are in Belarus and uh, and Russia. And I think that would be unacceptable. I I don't think that you can actually... I mean, NATO is a defensive organisation, always has been, was created for that reason. That's the reason that Finland and Sweden might want to join it. Uh, And I think that you can't therefore go and attack Russia. All right. So we are now in 
we grant that Ukraine has become, even those who had their doubts before, we grant that Ukraine has become a real nation. We grant that Putin must be stopped, and he must be stopped here. Otherwise, his next step is to take on NATO, and that really, we just have to stop him here. And we and from that point, it becomes, we instantly find ourselves involved in complicated, detailed, prudential judgments. Do we send MiGs? How do we send the MiGs? We can't take out the SAMs. That, here's sort of my last question. That requires us, in our case, the American people, to trust the military establishment and to trust the administration to get these complicated, difficult, prudential judgments right. Now then, I have three words for you, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Vietnam. This notion that they've squandered the trust of the American people. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that the, that the sentiment on the right in this country of mistrust for our leadership and this kind of neo-isolationist sentiment does not come from nowhere. How, 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 how should we as conservatives address that? Well, I don't think you can blame the generals, um, frankly. I think that if you give them a job to try to get uh, to get MiG-29s uh, into Ukraine, they will come up with, without, uh, you know, having them flown across the border by, by NATO uh, pilots. I'm sure they'd be able to come up with a, a good way of dealing it. No, the problem is the politicians. The problem mm -hmm. is that President Biden has uh, led from behind in every single stage of this uh, conflict. And before the conflict, he made moronic statements frankly, about incursions versus invasions and so on. Uh, he, his, the form of his withdrawal from Afghanistan was a green light for Putin in uh, Ukraine, essentially saying that the West was decadent and, uh, and wouldn't um, stick up for values. And so as a result, you're in a far worse position now. That doesn't mean, though, that he couldn't... Um, uh, he couldn't actually act. I mean, the other day where he gave $800 million was a, was a jolly good start, frankly, when it comes to uh, uh, giving the Ukrainians what they need. It's the old, you know, it's Churchill. We're back to Churchill. It's give us the tools mm. and we will finish, we'll the, finish job. the job. I, they, exactly. You know, he was not asking for, Churchill was not asking for American intervention at that stage. He was asking for American weapons. And, uh, mm. and you know, ultimately also, I, I think there's something a little bit wrong um and 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 frankly sort of uh, a, bit, a bit disgusting really about the way that um we i don't mean you and i but i mean we in the west a lot of us especially in europe are um talking about what might or might not be acceptable for uh, for what zelensky can decide when um when he has his meeting with putin if that ever happens the fact is that we shouldn't be nudging him. We shouldn't be looking over his shoulder. We shouldn't say, oh, you can't give them Mariupol. You shouldn't give them this. You, you know. I mean, it really is It's his country that's being martyred and crucified right now. And for us to, uh, to nudge his uh, shoulder constantly, I think, is a, bit, uh, is a bit disgusting. We should not treat him as a client. Precisely. But I mean, he could be. I mean, in a sense, he's a proxy because he's fighting a proxy war. But he's not somebody who I think will do a worse deal than we would be able to get right. for him, frankly. Right. James. 
Last question. It goes to what Pete, what Peter was just saying there. Uh, you have proposed, Andrew, the creation of the U-24. Let me read the quote here that I've been given. Today, the world does not have such tools. The wars of the past have prompted our predecessors to create institutions that should protect us from war, but they unfortunately don't work. We see it. You see it. So we need new ones, new institutions, new alliances. There's this, end quote, there's this feeling. Sorry, who wrote in the that? Last two... I didn't write that, did I? <laughs> sorry. Who, who's, who I believe, I, I believe sorry, it was handed to, oh, I'm sorry, that was Zelensky. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, thought, I scratched my head for a moment thinking I, I, I'm, I'm writing too much if I can't recognize my own quotes. I know, but, but I, I, know, I, know, I know the feeling very much so. Well, let's let that, let's let that sit there in Zelensky's uh, yeah. statement that we need these new institutions. Yeah. Over the last two years, three years, COVID included, we've seen what seems to be the fracturing in the, of, of every institution that we assumed was reasonably competent. And we no longer have that faith in these things to do what's necessary, as Peter was saying. The world order that we had post-World War II was gone, and we didn't realize it until until Putin hit the brittle thing with a hammer, and now we are where we are, putting things back together. The two attempts in the previous century to come up with institutions that would safeguard the world from these things, League of Nations, UN, post-World Order, came after catastrophic immensely damaging wars. What is the chance that we can cobble together some new institutions to guide us through the 21st century if it's just stopping Putin, if we just stop him here? In other words, is this enough or is simply sending Putin back and having him fulminate for however many years he has left? Is, is, is that going to be enough of an impetus to get the West and the other institutions to come up with something that guides us better than the institutions that have failed us in the last few years? Well, they certainly have uh, failed us, haven't they? I mean, the League of Nations, very obviously. I'm reminded um, of what the uh, League of Nations was going to be debating on the day that Adolf Hitler invaded <laughs> Poland. Uh, it was the standardization of railway gauges. And that, for them, was the number one issue at that time. And uh, and the United Nations has done no better. Of course it hasn't. Um, and I don't think that that just a rejigging of the seating around the Security Council, you know, giving one person an extra seat, taking away a Security Council seat from somebody else is going to make any difference either. No, I'm afraid I'm a, I'm a hard power guy on this. I think the institution that we've got to coalesce around is NATO. I think that um, if we had the Finns and the Swedes in NATO as well, that would be... Uh, uh, obviously, it would also be a, a big, long border with Russia, but I think it would be a superb slap in the face for Putin because so many of the things that he wanted to happen have not happened and vice versa. And of course, I mean, we must also um, I mean, accept the fact that I mean, we celebrate the fact that Germany has been a neo-pacifist power for 75 years. You know, for three quarters mm. of a century, they have essentially been um, uh, undermining um, the uh, the solidity of the West, and now they've brought themselves up to two percent. They're spending a hundred billion. They're sending uh, they're sending lethal weapons rather than helmets. I mean, it's been an extraordinary sea change yes. since uh, since the I think dreadful Angela Merkel has uh, left the political scene. So you know there is something to celebrate. Where when Peter was talking earlier about the West, I think that we would be in a much better, better position now, much more unified were China to attack Taiwan, for example, which I think is much less likely now that the West mm. has shown um, unanimity in so many areas over this.
Well, there's the question as to whether or not G is looking at this and saying, hmm, maybe I don't want to ally myself with this guy in the end. Andrew, we could go on for another hour, and one of these days we will, and I understand that uh, you have a podcast, right, Peter? Yes, Andrew has a podcast. Uh, fool that he is. He's invited me to follow Henry Kissinger. Andrew, the name <laughs> of the podcast? Secrets of Statecraft. Um, I, I, I think you'd be the perfect person to, uh, to follow Henry. <laughs> <laughs> a little light entertainment after, after Actually, no, the storm. Funny enough, we, we have light entertainment before, um, which is uh, Chris Buckley, who is... Oh, uh, you he's had giving, Chris... He's giving right. a... a, 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 a fascinating uh, disquisition on the history of the faux pas, the social faux pas. Uh, that's coming out today or tomorrow. So I think, I hope that All listeners right. will enjoy that too. Secrets of Statecraft, and this will appear on the Apple, in the Apple iPod store, just everywhere, I suppose. Spotify, Google on it. Yes, you name All it. All right. All right. Thanks. Terrific. Uh, the Terrific. history of the faux pas. Oh, oh, for the appointment in Samara days when a simple social faux pas could end your life. A simpler time. A better time. No, worse time. What am I talking about? <laughs> Andrew, thank you very much for joining us in the podcast today. We'll thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Um, well, it's always good to discuss and remember the genius of Churchill. And if Rob Long were here, and by the way, he'll be coming along just in a second right now, he'd say, gee, James, wouldn't it be great if you could find some kind of genius in your own life? And then I would pretend to be a mad at what he said. And then he'd go on in his fashion and then we'd eventually get to the spot, right? And you'd say, well, where are you going to go with the genius thing? Policy genius. That's why. Listen, if somebody relies on your financial support, a child, aging parent, even a business partner, you need life insurance. Having it can give you peace of mind that if something happens to you, your loved ones would have a financial cushion for rent, mortgage payments, loans, education costs, and everyday expenses. Policy Genius is your one-stop shop to find and buy the insurance you need. Believe it or not, well, getting Policy Genius is easier than you can possibly imagine. Just head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions. In a few minutes, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. And keep in mind, you could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Their team of licensed experts at Policy Genius will help you understand your options and apply for the policy you choose. They work for you, not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. No hidden fees. And Policy Genius doesn't sell your information to third parties. That's great. To find out why they've amassed thousands of positive reviews across Google and Trustpilot, head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. And we thank Policy Genius for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast H.R. McMaster, retired Lieutenant General of the U.S. Army, who served as the 26th National Security Advisor in 2017 and 2018. He's been a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a consulting senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Wartime, wartime anxieties being what they are. See, I can't even get out the word wartime anxieties. Um, we thought we'd have him on. Welcome. One question. How's Russia doing? From here, what we're seeing, it looks it looks odd. It looks bad. It looks like the mighty, strong Russian army that everybody feared um, is fraught with operational, logistical, technical difficulties. Well, they are, you know, and it, it shouldn't be surprising. You know, the, the you know the the uh, the way to evaluate your know, military prowess is, is it goes far beyond counting the numbers of of tanks or weapon systems or your missiles that a, that a, that a, an army or, or armed force has. And what you're seeing are really significant qualitative deficiencies in in that force associated with poor training. 
the the inability to integrate what we call all arms into the fight, and that would be infantry and and uh, and tanks and close combat supported by effective fires delivered, you know, by artillery systems or 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 through the uh, through an air force. Uh, the inability to conduct effective reconnaissance. I mean, they're not. They're leading with their nose. You know, they're not, they're, they're mm. not making contact under favorable conditions with a defending enemy. They have all kinds of logistics problems, as we've seen. And there are many indicators of ill discipline and poor morale. Uh, a lot of the maintenance issues that they've had, for example, just indicate that they're not maintaining their equipment well. And, and so I, I think in many ways, this is a, a Potemkin army. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, war is the great auditor of military institutions. It's, uh, it's quite easy to look pretty strong in peacetime. I mean, we've seen all the films of Russian tanks charging across open fields, uh, but now they're meeting a very determined uh, defending force uh, and, and, uh, and the Ukrainian army that's much different from the Ukrainian army of, of 2014. Hey, H.R. Peter here. How, I have two questions for you. One is kind of technical, and one is is what uh, you have taught me to ask the big, the big question: What is the desired end state? But first, here's the question: If you're Putin, or let's say you're a general serving under Putin, you know something about being a general. How do you proceed? How does the command structure remain intact when you now know that all your subordinate officers have been lying to you? all this time about their capabilities and about the levels of discipline when you now know that the young russian men who grew up in villages with wood houses and dirt roads and thought it was really cool to be in the army and drive a tank they've now seen tanks destroyed in their columns they've lost comrades and they don't want to be there anymore at the, are we at the stage where where there's likely to be just a comprehensive breakdown in in the in the ability of the Russian army to function as an army? And that's the first question. I'm just going to give these to you and let you deal with them as you wish, and, and then get out of the way. And the second question, the lead editorial in the Wall Street Journal yesterday was headlined, Why Not Victory in Ukraine? What would victory look like? What should Zelensky be aiming for that's the great lesson i've learned from you over the years start from where you want to end okay over to you hr well to your first question in terms of just the breakdown of the force i think that's quite possible right and you know in his in his magnificent study the face of battle john keegan observed that what battles had in common uh across several centuries right because he looked at battles that occurred in, in generally the same geographic area across four centuries he concluded that what battles have in common is human the struggle of men uh trying to reconcile their instinct for self-preservation with the achievement of some aim over which others are trying to kill them and he goes on to observe that battle is always aimed at the disintegration of human groups and and uh, and so I think we have to remember that war has a very strong psychological dimension to it. And I think what you're seeing is the disintegration of some of these Russian units. And you're also seeing a great deal of resilience on the part of uh, on the part of Ukrainian forces. And, and where does that resilience come from? Well, it really comes from. Uh, I think uh, the warrior ethos, you know, you're uh, an ethos around, uh, you know, principles like honor, willingness to to sacrifice for one another. It comes from the cohesion in teams that 
that really become bound together by, you know, by mutual trust and common purpose, where there's a, a real sense of affection, right, between between soldiers in, in, in a military organization. You fear uh, letting your 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 fellow soldiers down more than you fear uh, the prospect of death, you know, and and that's where that's where combat power comes from is that kind of confidence uh, in in one another. It also comes from the recognition that you're fighting in a righteous cause, and certainly this is the case for the Ukrainians. You know, is it G.K. Chesterton who said, you know, that that uh, you don't fight uh, based on what's in front of you, you fight for what's behind you, right? And uh, and, uh, right. and and I think that when you look at you know the the corrupt you know regime in in in, in Russia, uh, there have to be some doubts, you know, uh, among those who are fighting about whether this cause is righteous, especially when they see that they have been responsible uh, for uh, for inflicting you know the uh, death and destruction on innocent civilians. So all all of these are factors, right? And 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 I, I, it's really hard to determine how that's going to play out, especially because there's a and there's an information blackout, you know, in Russia essentially now. Right. Uh, so I think it's really important to to talk to people in the know uh, who who have friends in Russia, uh, which I've been trying to do in 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 recent um, recent weeks. So, yeah, I think that the the issue is of will and and the disintegration of human groups, and I think it's quite possible. Remember, you know, you, you can uh, an army victory can, an is army, possible. An army can mutiny, right? I mean, the French army mutinied after the after the Nivelle right. offensives in World War One. Um, so, I you know, we'll see we'll see what happens here, but I think it's quite clear that you know the whole system in in Russia is corrupt, right? And and it was I think probably unrealistic to assume that that corruption would affect the military as well, and and um. And then, gosh, of course, now I'm forgetting the second question, Peter. The end state, the, the end state, state okay. question, well, yeah, HR. Okay, what should yeah. Zelensky aim so, for? Some yeah. sort of partition settlement? What, what, do, what What's the end state that's acceptable? No, I think the, the, the end state that's acceptable is, is really a, a return of all of the territory of Ukraine uh, to, to the Ukrainians. And, and, of course, that may have to entail a delay uh, for many more year potentially of the return of, of Crimea and the, the portions of Donetsk and Luhansk that that that, uh, that were occupied in 2014. But I think of just a withdrawal of the forces, a restoration of of of, uh, of Ukrainian control over all the territory that Russia has taken since this renewed assault uh, on on the country. Uh, and you know, and I think he ought to demand that. You know, I mean, I, now it's up to him. I, I I think Andrew's quite right about this that we shouldn't be telling him what he should demand. We should support him, but we have objectives here as well. I mean, as as Andrew alluded, this is kind of a proxy war, right? Between, you know, between I think our free and open societies <laughs> and and an authoritarian um, revisionist uh, power uh, that is connected to another authoritarian revisionist power on the Eurasian landmass, and that's as China, obviously. So. It's important to us that Russia fails. I think that ought to be our objective number one. Russia fails. And I think we define that by the withdrawal of Russian forces and the return of territory to, to Ukraine. That won't end the conflict, right? If Putin's still in power, he'll try to still keep Ukraine under his thumb. And, and this might be an unrealistic objective at this stage. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen to Russian will. We don't know what's going to happen with Putin, right? We don't uh, We don't know, you know, are the Ukrainians going to be able to maintain their national will under such duress for an extended period of time? But Russia fails should be, I think, our objective number one. I think objective, you know, objective uh, number two is to mitigate the humanitarian catastrophe there, right? And and uh, objective three, I think, is prevent an escalation to nuclear war. So some of these objectives are in tension with one another. And I think the fourth objective is to is to to use this crisis 
to shift the balance uh, in favor of our free and open and democratic societies and away from China and Russia. We need to hang this on Xi Jinping's neck. Uh, we need to remind him and reread frequently the 5,000 word statement that Putin and Xi issued just prior to the Olympics, during which they essentially declared victory over us and said that we're entering a new era of international relations. There are no limits to their partnership. And this is an opportunity, I think, for us to stop underwriting our own demise uh, with economic and financial re relationships with China uh, that, that are that are that are putting us in a, in a position of disadvantage, right? So I I think there are all sorts of opportunities here and, that that we need to take advantage of, um, but of course recognizing that those opportunities are being created really with the the blood and and suffering of uh, of the Ukrainian people. Hey, HR, it's Rob Long. Thank you for joining us again. Um, Last time we had you on, we were talking about Afghanistan and uh, military humiliation, or at least a foreign policy humiliation. Um, and I have to tell you that then a few months, a few weeks later, I was uh, burning up the text lines to you to ask for your help in getting an Afghan uh, family uh, out of Kabul. And by the way, you, success. They are living with their relatives in Los Angeles. So one of the women uh, was pregnant. I, you know, uh, she couldn't name her child HR. So just be prepared for. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So thank you for that. Um, so I'm going to ask a couple, well, some, some, um, a couple of military questions, strategy questions, and then some big, big think. Right, the, the strategy questions are: To what extent is there now a cascade in favor of the Ukrainians? That I mean, yes, they're they're destroying the buildings, they're destroying, they're killing people, but there does seem to be this surprising for people who aren't who do are not war fighters or war fight studiers. It does seem to me like there's a there's a missing link that we didn't predict that this is not a game of risk. This is not a game of chess. This is something else going on where the Ukrainian people we, each day, they don't fall. They get stronger somehow. Rob, you know, I, think, I think that's right. You know, I, and you know, of course it's, it, there's so many factors that, that will, that will, that will help determine the outcome of this. I don't think, I don't think anybody can predict with any degree of certainty what's going to happen, but I do, I do have this, the same sense that I think maybe, maybe you do as well, that, that time is not on Russia's side. Right. I mean, they're having right. a very difficult time uh, supplying themselves logistically. You know, they've had maintenance issues already. They're not going to get any any better. The, they, they don't have a good logistic system. They can't fix vehicles forward. Uh, you know, you've seen maybe some of these film uh, some of these clips of of Russian soldiers abandoning their their equipment and just leaving it, you know, in the center of some of these towns and walking away from it because they're out of gas. Right. And, and uh, you know, the, the Ukrainians are doing, I think, a really smart <laughs> job of of attacking soft targets, the the trucks that are coming in to resupply them. Um, you know, so I, I really think the time is is on uh, on on the Ukrainian side, and then of course you have the the effect of the sanctions, the financial and and economic sanctions that that will that that will continue to inflict more pain uh on on russia so yeah you know, i think yeah you know, i think there is an opportunity here to um you know to to try to you know uh, you know to accelerate yeah. you know an outcome uh that ends the the bombing of the cities and, and this is you know so, putin can still do a hell of a lot of damage he's doing it right now right so oh yeah right so i so i mean what, what are we learning i guess about about russian capacity in the uh, late 80s uh, uh russian migs and u.s fighters went toe-to-toe -to -toe in a proxy war in the Middle East. And it was a total rout. 
for the uh, for the, Amer- the Americans just completely destroyed the Russian Air Force. Right. Russian planes yeah. flown by non-Russians against American planes flown by Israelis. And the technological advantage was so enormous that it was one of the things that was part of the calculation for why the Cold War had to end, why the Russians had to sort of throw up their hands. They couldn't win. Um, and it was a very interesting uh, example for Americans and American, certainly people who were for or against the military buildup of the 80s, that actually we got value for our money. Um, what are we learning? What do we learn now about the rel- Because it doesn't seem like there are American um, weapons in the in the region. It seems like we're talking about Soviet MiGs going against the Russian forces. What are we learning anything about the next time this happens? Because it's going to happen again, right? Yeah, I, I think what we're learning is, I mean, that the, you know, the Russian equipment is just is and weapons don't work very well, right? And and uh, right. and you know, I think one of the one of the things, I mean, I you know, I'm an, I'm an armored cavalry officer, you know, um, there's no way in hell I'd ever want to be in a Russian tank, man. I mean, you know, I mean, I I think that you know, of course their design uh, is not for survivability, right? And you're seeing that you know, how hard they're being hit with uh, N-laws, you know, which is a relatively simple, uh, disposable anti-tank uh, weapon system. Uh, and, and of course, the, the much more advanced javelins, you know, which have a range out to four kilometers. I mean, these anti-tank weapons are crushing them, not just because of the inferiority of their equipment, but again, the inability to, to employ all arms in the fight, right? To conduct effective reconnaissance and then to, to be able to, to, to employ infantry and armor together. Right. But, you know, the Russians have a, a kind of a history of, of being ineffective in this. Remember Grozny, 93 to 94 even, right? Uh, and then and then what happened is they did Grozny 99, 1999 under Putin, and they just leveled the city. They killed 80,000 right. civilians, 80,000 in Grozny. So, you know, this is something that Putin's done before, right? He's Aleppoizing, you might say. You know some of the some of the, right. the cities in uh, in Ukraine. So so he's he's ruthless. You know he can do a lot of damage. Um, you know in in you know in 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 uh, in this war uh, that doesn't take a lot of skill to bombard a city, and and you know I think that that's really got to be the emphasis now. You know we mentioned make sure Putin fails. Part of that is to ensure that Ukraine has the right range of capabilities to ensure that Russia fails and. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you two questions. Put on two hats, right? I'm gonna ask you put on your Putin hat. Um, you know, it's a <laughs> big furry hat, right? Um, what is he? What is he? What is his uh, strategy now? And let me let me pitch you what I would pitch to him if I was sitting, you know, across that long desk. That the thing you want is you want this to get super murky. You want to make it as complicated and as confusing as possible because you want to go to the table with all sorts of things that you can negotiate so you can pull out and say hey listen i got an agreement that they're not going to join nato and that's all i needed and then you come out and you say obviously i have to pay restitution but i can't because you guys have all your sanctions so you got to lift your sanctions and you kind of live to fight another day right you, you kind of scuttle home because it seemed to me that was the only possible outcome anyway. If you invade a country, whether you do it for the right reasons or wrong reasons, there's always a Hamad Karzai in the wings you're going to bring in. You're always doing it in favor of the of the true leader, the real leader of the nation that you're trying to reinstall. There's always a Shah, there's always a Hamad Karzai, there's always something like that. He didn't seem to be prepared for any of that. 
Well, he, you know, he was, he was just operating on all the wrong assumptions, right? And, you know, he thought, okay, he thought that, uh, you know, his forces would triumph in a few days. And we know this right. because they mistakenly released the victory message, you know, and, and had to reel it back in. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and so, you know, he, he also thought, you know, the, the Ukrainian army was going to fold. It didn't fold. And I think he just believed his own propaganda. Remember the 6,000 word essay he published under his name last summer, right? Where he said, you know, Ukraine doesn't, isn't a viable entity, right? They're just longing to be right. part of Mother Russia again. So, of course, nobody's done more to to, to strengthen you know, Ukrainian national identity than Vladimir Putin has over the years, right? And um, and and especially now. And then, of course, I think he just looked at himself. Like he he looks he looked powerful, didn't he? Right before the Olympics, mm-hmm. you know, and and uh, standing there next well, the, to Xi Jinping and the, the friendship that will never end. Right, right there are right. no the, limits to no, our li- no limits to the friendship. And he thinks of himself, you know, he's a, he, this is a guy who rides, you know shirtless on horseback right and i'm sure and he looked and he <laughs> okay looked, all right he looked he looked at, he looked at, it just seems strange that there was never <laughs> there, he didn't have a ferdinand marcos or a shavaran he wasn't imposed he wasn't even playing the game the way it's traditionally played that seems to me to be so well, so if you're not, not, take off your putin yeah. hat for a minute and put on your she hat and he's got to be pissed right because he's this is a total disaster for him. His way out would be I'm maintaining my status as an honest broker between the two. I'm going to try to broker peace. How does he do that? He's not even on the game. He he's not part of this. Yeah, I mean, right. it, you know, the, the Chinese hate two things: they hate failure and they hate instability. And mm. it seems to me mm-hmm. that Putin has brought both. They now have a client state, a little brother they can't trust. So, but what? What is? How's he going to play the next month? Well, he's he's already kind of trying to play it this way, right? We call on all parties, you know, all this nonsense, right? Yeah, yeah right. You know, uh, abstaining from UN uh, votes and trying to trying to occupy this middle ground. But at the same time, you know, he's responsible for this, right? He it, it, not that he had to greenlight Putin, but he basically said, "Yeah, I've got your back. Don't don't worry about it." This is the Olympics, and then Putin, of course, you know, took care of him by postponing the invasion till after the Olympics, which kind of screwed Russia over, right? And Putin over because the ground right. thawed, right? And, and that limited right. his, his mobility uh, even more for the offensive. <laughs> and then, and right. then you know, I, he's, what, what Xi Jinping has already done, okay? He's already done this. He's given, you know... Um, his his you know his leadership there the mission of helping Russia circumvent the economic and financial sanctions. This is going to I think we're going to reveal this quite uh, soon. I think the administration is going to reveal all of this, and uh, and then I think we're we're into the the great decoupling, right? I mean, unchecked globalization, it's over, right? It was always kind of a bad idea, right? Right, right. Uh, but we never had to pay the price for supply chains that were biased too much in favor of efficiency and low cost rather than resilience. And this is going to be painful. It's going to be a painful economic transition. So the smart move for the Chinese, you think, is to say, hey, you know what? How dare you invade Ukraine? We're we're on the side of uh, Germany and the U.S. and Europe, and we'll help. It. We'll 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 give weapons to the Ukrainians. Would that be the smart move at this point? Well, it would be, but they won't do it. He won't do it, right? Because yeah. I think what he you're absolutely right. What is he what, what is he motivated by? Xi Jinping mainly fear fear of losing the party's exclusive grip on power, and that's tied mm. to his aspiration, right, of restoring Russia to I mean China to national right. greatness. Now, what he, I think he's afraid of any kind of chink in his armor at all. Right. So if if Russia fails after China so clearly backed him and they profess their love for one another, (laughs) I mean, how does that look for for she? It looks like he's weak. It looks like he's unwise at the very least. Right. And he's got the Chinese Communist Party Congress, the 20th Congress coming up in November, during which he hopes to be, 
you know, uh, uh, named chairman for life, essentially, the new Mao Zedong. And so he's, you know, this is what he's looking forward to. And and Putin is, it's a problem for him, the failure um, in Ukraine, which makes it all the more important that we ensure uh, Putin fails there. Okay, last question. I know James wants to get in. I know you got to go. Um, are we ready? Are, are our armed forces ready? I mean, you know, a year ago, we would have said, I don't know, like, it looks like the Russians are tough and we're doing uh, 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 anti-transphobia seminars in the U.S. military. How how off the mark are we? Would we be surprised if we had a, 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 a if we had to go in a land war in uh, in Ukraine? I think our, for, we, uh, our, I think our okay. forces are very ready, you know, you know, in terms of level of training, level of competence, the ability to integrate joint capabilities effectively. But our, our forces are suffering from a bow wave of deferred modernization, first incurred during the Obama administration. They're also mm-hmm. they're also suffering uh, from a lack of capacity. Right. We've assumed for so long that our exquisite technological capabilities would allow smaller and smaller forces to have bigger impact over wider areas. And so I, I think the, the defense strategy that was supposed to come out uh, in the national security strategy, I think those have been reeled back in because they were based on this assumption that, you know, that it's all really about China. We don't have to worry about anything else. Right. We only have to worry about one conflict at a time. When now we can see the potential for cascading conflicts from the Middle East with an increasingly aggressive Iran because we've been supplicating to them, uh, as well as the crisis that we see in Ukraine and, the, and the, obviously the threats uh, to Taiwan or to in the South China Sea. And so we have to be prepared for more. And, and our forces have just gotten too darn small, right? I mean, we only have mm-hmm. eleven armored brigades in you know. In- are we looking at an? Are we looking at a nineteen eighty style expansion that was sort of born out of almost the the, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan? You know, you know I, I, that I gotta- think so, but we don't have to spend six percent of GDP like we did in the eighties to to make up for it. Right now, we're only spending about you know three point four percent of GDP. We only need to spend about four percent of GDP to make it up. I think that's my estimate of it anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh. And 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 uh, and and that's the kind of historical norm, you know, in in the in the post World War II period, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, when if peacetime norm, right? And, and, and excluding the, the the hot wars of you know Korea and 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 uh, and Vietnam and so forth. So you know, I, I really I really think um, it's time to do it. I don't think this administration will do it because you know what they're talking about. They're using this term integrated deterrence, right? yeah, which right. is like a magic wand, right? Uh, that, that prevents conflict uh, with economic sanctions. How did that work out? Right. And, and other, and other means. So, you know, I think we're, hopefully we're coming to the realization, you know, hard power, you know, it kind of matters. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and deterrence is based on kind of a simple equation, capability times will. Right. And the reason why I think deterrence failed is that Putin assumed that our will was zero. Our will being the will in the West, especially after the, the humiliating withdrawal and surrender in, in Afghanistan. Uh, and then our, our capability was insufficient, right? We deployed, we pulled out of the Black Sea last fall. Why did we do that? To play Cape Putin. How did that work out? You know, we de- we're deploying like penny packets of, of of American troops to, you know, to uh, to Europe. I don't think that's a, like a very serious message, hard power message. So I do think that, you know, I hope we learned the lesson that, hey, the hard power aspect of, you know, of the elements of national power, it, it matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, I have 16 more questions about Russian institutional <laughs> flexibility when it comes to reevaluating their strategy, but we're going to have to leave that for the next time. And I hope at that point we're discussing uh, a fruitful conclusion to all of this. H.R. McMaster, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. James, Rob, hey, hey, Peter, great to be with all of you. Take care. H.R., thank Thanks. you so thank much. Thank you so much. Now Thanks. go enjoy those grandkids for the weekend. <laughs> I, know, I, know. I will. Thanks, man. Take care. Hope to see you guys in person soon. Take care.
You know, it's been fascinating to those of us who've been watching. This is a Twitter war. It's a TikTok war. It's a it's not a Facebook war, although I, I'm not on Facebook, so I couldn't tell. Uh, but I, I've learned so many things about so many aspects of warfare from people who know what they're talking about, have one <laughs> yeah, little detail. Right. And I just love it. There's a, a, a thread from a guy who is basically um, logistics and maintenance. He's a he's an army truck maintenance guy. That was what he did for 20 or 30 years. So he's able to look at a picture and look at the tires or look at the bed of the of, 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 of a vehicle and tell you something that is absolutely fascinating. Of course, we all love having this little illusion of greater knowledge based on something we read on Twitter. But as a whole, taken together, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I say that removed from the horror that's going on. Um, and you, of course, want to remove yourself from a horror as well. I was, uh, you know... <laughs> I was reading yesterday um, that a whole bunch of planes Russian, uh, were heading east. Russian official government planes were heading east over the Urals, and they had their transporter transponders on so everybody could see where they were going. And people were saying, this is, uh, they're bugging out for the bunkers. They're, they're, they're going to the doomsday bunkers, and they want us to know it, and they're either trying to make us worry, or they don't care, or whatever. So I laid down for my nap and I'm trying to sleep and I'm trying not to think Impossible of to that sleep possibility. No, no way to sleep there. And You're then completely what happens? How could you possibly goes sleep? Impossible, literally impossible. You're just torn up by anxiety and terror. Like you would just, uh, it would require, it would require almost extremely superhuman uh, sleeping apparatus and equipment for you to just to, to be able to drift off to a nap. Literally impossible. Surprised you, you're, you're still functioning now having, Literally no sleep those, due to your anxieties. It, those would be interesting assertions to what? make. And what? Better placed, perhaps, at the conclusion of my anecdote rather than in media. Ah, but perhaps. What I meant to note was that we had an amber alert here in the Twin Cities, which means that everybody's phone, whether you like it ah. or not, makes, it, makes an emergency broadcast warning sign. And so I was jarred from my nap by this sound, which you sort of presume goes with sirens. And so this segue is I, so long, it has like several ways to get into the spot. This is a pretty good segue, <laughs> i got to say. It did. Like However, it, it has like been, a, it it's, has, got, it's a three-act structure for your segue. This is great. It would be shorter if you were still in traffic. Well, if you do three of them, <laughs> if you do three of them, I get to interrupt three times. That's the that's kind right. of the rule. But go ahead. Anyway, Sorry. point is, I fell right right back to sleep in my nap because I have bowl and branch sheets, there you and go. that is important. The thing that you have to remember is that uh, you know, if you're tired, you know, you can fall asleep anywhere on a slab of marble if you want. But you know, in your daily life, you want to have a detail that helps you fall asleep better. You don't want to cut your corners on things that are important, and few things matter more than a good night's rest. Right? Right. Or a good afternoon's nap, in my case. Bolden Branch. They have signature sheets. They feel so soft and so light you will forget that you're not actually sleeping on a cloud. And they're sustainably made for uncompromising quality from field to factory. So what I like about them, and I mention this every week, and it gets more and more true every week, if trueness can be, can be quantified thus, is that every week... They're softer because the longer I have them, the softer they get. You can't say that about many things that get better with wear, but they do. Signature hemmed sheets from Bowling Branch are a bestseller for a reason. They're buttery, soft, lightweight, organic cotton in a classic setting wave. Ah, sheets that get softer over time. And they're not too hot. They're not too cool. They're the perfect year-round sheets for most sleepers. And now, in this transitional period here in Minnesota between you know depths of Siberian winter and hotness, it's you know, I don't even notice because my sheets are great. Bowling Branch sheets are made to a higher standard. 
They're 100% organic cotton. They have ethical production and thoughtful attention to every detail. Best of all, Bolden Branch gives you a fair price, plus 30-day free risk trial with free shipping and returns. So experience the best sheets you've ever felt at boldenbranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code what everybody altogether ricochet at the checkout. That's Bolden Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com. Promo code ricochet. And we thank Bolden Branch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Well, gentlemen, uh, Rob, you're back. That's good. Um, I'm back. Uh, I'll be going next story. week. But uh, you have a story? I have you a story. You're back with a story. You have, well, well, then a story you should tell. I was in New Haven. I went to, uh, on, on uh, Wednesday night, I had an incredibly interesting dinner um, conversation with members of the Buckley, William F. Buckley program there, which just was started by a former Ricochet kind of intern summer uh, young student named Harry Graver, uh, who's now you know, gone on to great, great things um, <laughs> as a law clerk. I, I don't know for a fact, but I think a law clerk for a, a recently appointed um, Supreme Court justice <laughs> who also <laughs> spent time in New Haven. Um, really? I Good for I, I, I don't know All for right. a fact, I think. Um, I should check. Anyway, so the Buckley program was there and we had a nice conversation. They're really, really, really super smart. I asked one, I mean, we talked a lot about, it. I asked, I, I have two, two stories, right? I asked one question. I said, on a scale of one to not pissed to 10 phenomenally volcanically pissed, how pissed are you young people at the country and the um, CDC and the scaffolding for basically ruining your college time uh, for no reason because you were not at risk. And one young guy turned around and goes, 11. And they all kind of <laughs> nod. They go, okay, let's save that. Mm-hmm. Use that. Mm-hmm. That's good. You have every right to it. I'm glad you feel that way. Right. Um, but if we talk about everything, they're great. It's a really, really fascinating, really interesting stuff. Uh, I, I want them all to join. You know, We have the student membership thing, so I want them all to join because um, uh, it's free. And, um, and they should join um, uh, and sort of join the conversation, start some, because I know our members really love to hear it. Then the next day, I hung around for a day, and the next day I went and at six o'clock had a, <clears throat> a cigar at the Owl Shop there, um, which was just a cigar store, but in the in- in- intervening three decades plus since I was a student, uh, it has turned into a, like a cigar bar and a really nice one too. And uh, and I want to use the real name, so I'll just say, so uh, uh, um, I met uh, uh, three other members. Uh, not, a couple of them I had met already before it various new hampshire events during the primaries we used to do which i hope we still do um CG ricochet, law, ricochet and, members you're not not buckley program but ricochet no, 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 members yeah, sorry these, these are these are people Got it. uh ct law and um and then jack mantle but i don't know um i i can't remember what his his uh his I think that's what it's but i think that's his handle and then um kirkian wanderer uh who uh, uh is young and looks younger and she was carded like within a second uh, hmm. of sitting down. Um, and we, we were going to meet for six, six to eight, maybe, you know, have, you know what a drink. And we left at 10 and we talked about everything. We solved every problem there is. Uh, and it's fascinating because uh Kirky and wanderer um, speaks in like six languages, including Arabic and Russian and um, English and a bunch of other ones. And, uh, and so she kind of like, we were talking and every now and then she would, in her very quiet voice sort of say, well, actually, and then she would <laughs> fill in, the information that we as sort of grown up people don't have. Um, and, uh, and it was just fantastic. And so um, I hope she, I hope she posts more and I hope they continue to post because uh, they're great members. And that is the kind of thing you, we can get to do now that there is no more COVID and we get to meet in person. Um, so 
that's this my story, and that leads into my 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 portion here of this podcast to remind you that we do have a nightcap cocktail recipe winner that was announced by Peter Robinson uh, on call in with John Gabriel and uh, David Sachs. Do you want to? It's it's Brian Stevens. Hold on, I want to get the name of the drink exactly right. It's written down here. Yes. Now wait a minute. It's the, it was a spicy a, yeah. spicy rye. I can't remember the name I'm of in. the drink now. Okay. Well, right. you got to go. You got to you got to you got to go to the member's feed and check it out because apparently it's really great. And I'm going to find the recipe and I'll do it too. Um, but I already spicy rye. I'm in. Um, that sounds like my stage name. Um, <laughs> uh, coming up. Just in time for Eastern Passover, radio talk show host and PragerU founder Dennis Prager uh, will be our next guest for No Dumb Questions to discuss his new book, The Rational Passover Haggadah, but also everything else. Um, Who's he talking to? He'll be talking to none other than James Lilacs. So that's Wednesday, March 23rd at 8 p.m. Uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Bring your best questions. Join us. Join Ricochet. Join that. That's going to be great. I'm, I'm kind of jealous. He's, a, he's sort of a he's kind of prickly, though. James, are you ready for that? Because he's little, he can oh. be cranky. Dennis is Dennis. We've had him on the show here. Um, we've talked pens and Bruckner, which is always a way to soften him up. He's been over to my house for heaven's sakes. I had I had burgers with him at one point. So I'm 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 not afraid. So you're prepared. I'm not afraid. I'm I'm very much prepared for Dennis Breger. I I, I, <laughs> I I mean, in the in the ranks of prickly people, I don't I don't put Dennis at the top. I don't. Uh, oh, that's good. Know, he's I. I've interviewed William Shatner, so I think I'm okay. Okay, I've just been I've been corrected. Spicy whiskey sour—that's the name of the thing. Spicy whiskey yes. sour with probably with rye. Um, and you got to join to get the recipe. To get the recipe along to I join to join J- James's conversation with Dennis Prager. Somebody should come up with one of these drinks that uh, I, I discovered a new whiskey. Actually, it's available here in the states. I, I discovered it over in England. Um, I was at this pub and I just looked up at this shelf of inscrutable whiskeys and asked, you know, can I sample? It's something that I'll never get here. And then I would, I found something else that I can get here and I come back and I'm all happy, but I'm thinking, I, you know what? I should, I should find a healthier way to drink. There's got to be some drink that somebody comes up with in the cocktail conversation contest that involves like, um, a really high quality vodka, not the Russian stuff, no. Of that, <laughs> and uh, like those uh, those uh, yogurt things that people are taking for their gut microbiome. Oh yeah, Pro- probiotics. Well, uh, well probiotics. Yes, okay. Probiotic, a probiotic vodka uh, substance, up, even if it doesn't increase the health of your gut microbiome, at least it cancels out whatever the vodka does. Now, it, you know, folks, I, I got to tell you this because obviously I'm doing something here that is spot wise. You know that you've been hearing a lot about gut microbiomes lately, right? We didn't know anything about it, and all of a sudden everybody's an expert. Well. Well, you know, it's more than diet and exercise to keep yourself healthy. And if you got type 2 diabetes, well, people over time who have that lose the gut bacteria that help them digest fiber and manage blood glucose levels. And Pendulum Glucose Control, Pendulum Glucose Control is the first, the only medical probiotic clinically shown to help manage type 2 diabetes when taken with medication. Now, for those with type 2 diabetes, exercise and diet are often not enough alone to manage it. The best approach emphasizes diet, exercise, and a healthy gut microbiome of which we were speaking. This connection has been widely recognized by leading scientists studying diabetes, including the American Diabetes Association, Mayo Clinic, and John Hopkins. Pendulum is designed to lower A1C and after-meal blood glucose levels to help you manage your type 2 diabetes. 
can feel like an uphill battle to keep post-meal blood sugar and A1C levels where you need them. And if you've struggled to manage them with diet and exercise alone, Pendulum can help fill in those gaps. With Pendulum, you can feel in control of your levels, not the other way around. Their team of scientists, doctors, and innovators isolated the unique strains of beneficial gut bacteria that help people with type 2 diabetes manage their blood sugar levels. Now, if somebody you know has type 2 diabetes, take control of glucose levels with Pendulum Glucose Control. Use the code RICOCHET at PendulumLife.com to get 20% off your first month of membership. That's P-E-N-D-U-L-U-M-L-I-F-E.com. Promo code RICOCHET for 20% off your first month of membership. And we thank Pendulum for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And last thing before we go here, interesting story. Oh, yes, Rob. I have two more promos. <laughs> two, more, two more Ricochet uh, sort of, uh, it, club announcements. It never is. I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm, we're, I'm we're very like, myself. This is, this is a part of our new thing. I'm telling you, this is like because the, the being a member is a good thing and it has benefits. Uh, if you, it uh, is, but you, this, you this can, is like on radio when you cut to seven PSAs. Sure. Well, you know? this is yeah. This is put up. Um, I this is but this one from me. I'm joining uh this uh, a group called Lean Right to discuss concert creatives. Um, and that's like a couple days from now. That's on March 23rd at 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, it's a community for uh, Jews and friends of Jews who are conservative. So that's, I mean, the, I guess I, 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 despite Peter Robinson, I do, I do count as a conservative. Um, and it, sound, it sounds like it'll be a lot of fun. And you can join uh, Lean Right. And uh, that, all that info will be up on ricochet.com slash events. Go check it out. And then this other cool, really cool thing. On March 30th, former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, president of Young America's Foundation, and former Wall Street Journal reporter Azra Nomani will join Ricochet editor Bethany Mandel and Andrew Gutman. They have their own podcast here called Take Back Our Schools. Uh, and they will be at the uh, Young America's Foundation headquarters in Reston, Virginia, which is right outside of D.C., uh, to have a record a live episode and um and i think get into uh how to take back our schools and we want you to come we want you to be there in person go to ricochet.com slash events for more details we'd love to see you there um and that's there's all that i'm done but that is a reason to join ricochet.com i agree good reasons all and now for my pitch for ricochet i'm going to read the entire 165 uh post thread that has no i'm, I'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> I'm, we'll leave that for people to find on their own. Peter, come back in here as we close with this thought. There was some news this week that finally San Francisco has managed to boycott most of the United States. Quote, a March 4th memorandum from city administrator Carmen Chu reveals that San Francisco will not enter into contracts with businesses headquartered in most of the United States, 28 states in all. Official travel to those states is also forbidden. So... So if you pass a law that San Francisco doesn't like uh, in order to support their values, they just simply won't do business with you. This, this falls into the very large category, big fat file folder for all those of us who live here in Northern California of things to ignore that come out of San Francisco. The item not to ignore took place a couple of weeks ago when there was a recall election and all three members of the school board who were up for recall, did get recalled by a margin of three to one. Even in that most progressive and wokest of cities, San Francisco, it turns out that all three of the school board members who thought they were just being woke like San Francisco, all three of them got tossed, I repeat, by a margin of three to one. It turns out you can be too woke even for San Francisco, especially if what you're doing is monkeying around with people's 
kids' education. That goes in the very yeah. narrow folder of things about San Francisco to take seriously. Mm-hmm. Who knew the Boogaloo Boys were so big in San Francisco and registered to vote? That is that is quite <laughs> remarkable. Well, we um, could go on forever and ever and ever. We could even talk about daylight savings time, which is sort of like talking about the weather. Um, and so we're not going to. What we are going to do is thank you for listening. Thank all of our sponsors, Bowling Branch, Pendulum, Policy Genius. Thank Rob for finally getting around here. That's great. I mean, he's racing through traffic. It's like one of those scenes from a movie where the guy throws money at the cabbie, gets out and runs, yes. right? I mean, we, we can just see this long tracking shot of you running through, excuse me, excuse me, bumping into coffee, flying everywhere until you get to your microphone. That's the dedication that he brings to this show. And the least you could do is join so that, uh, you know, Tell him that you're you're glad he's here. Rob, Peter, it's been fun. James, welcome welcome back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Welcome welcome back to you. And I'm gone next week, too. (laughs) Wow. I'm because I'm doing the Rob Long peripatetic thing. Maybe I'll chip in. That might be fun. It's entirely possible. But yeah, it was I gotta tell you this before I go. one, it was great to be away from the news. It really was to not have television screens. And I hate the way the television news is handling this because it's over emotional. BBC is doing an okay job. CNN has been doing surprisingly well with some of the people they have in the field, but everything in the studio, I can't stand. Two, at the airport, I noticed there was no CNN international playing anywhere. And I thought, this is a sign of a world that is healing because if you weren't having that nonsense droning overhead as everybody tuned it out and looked at their own little glowing screens. So that's a good sign. More updates from the world beyond next week in a couple of weeks. And I rejoin, but otherwise, great to see you guys again. And we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. James Lilacs is turning into late stage Johnny Carson. He just yeah. shows up <laughs> to shoot the show every so <laughs> yeah. often. All right. Da, 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 da. Rob, next week, you and I will be guest hosting again. Well, that's uh, that's got a, that's got its own charms. Mm. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Next week. <laughs> Next week, boys. Or boy. <laughs> yeah. What? Absolutely nothing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. What? Absolutely nothing. Say y'all. to me. to me.